In 2020, the pandemic upended our lives. Millions of people suddenly turned to the internet for a lifeline, Hello, can you hear me? using it in new and unexpected ways to keep critical pieces of life moving, or just to keep sane. I would say we probably use it the same way as a lot of other people. And then I'm a big nerd, and I like Dungeons and Dragons, so I use, uh, we use Gmail Hangouts. I actually use the internet a lot more than I used to for how-to videos. 92-year-old woman attempt to set up a video session so she could virtually see her new great-granddaughter. A tsunami of demand washed over the internet as nearly everything, classrooms, offices, concerts, graduations, yoga studios, and even zoos went online whether it was for birthday, uh, virtual meetings. To create that bond during a very... Some changes in society. I'm going to unmute you just really quick. few months. Like family online Pictionary game and with nephews and nieces. They host salsa dancing with you. Now, I feel like we're... <gasps> and all that virtual activity can be traced back to a real place in the real physical world, to a building. So, I'm sitting in a conference room having a meeting with my team, and I receive a ping from another manager saying, we have an urgent request, high priority. We need to turn up a few more terabytes of traffic to support COVID. Nicole Henley is an operations manager at a Google data center. She oversees a technical team inside a giant warehouse of computers, and these computers are answering Google searches, serving up videos on YouTube, and running popular apps. If you've ever searched for information about COVID or cats or even cantaloupe, Nicole is a person on the other end who makes sure the machines can find what you need. You want to make sure there's no lag, there's no delay. People have information available to them at their fingertips. And when she says that they have to turn up a few more terabytes of traffic, she means actually building racks of computer hardware that tower up to the ceiling. Now, Data centers deal with surges of traffic all the time. It's part of normal life inside these buildings. But the pandemic was different. Well, we didn't know at the time. I don't think the world imagined at the time the amount of people that would be working from home, the amount of people that would need search, the amount of people, you know, you just don't, we, we, were, we didn't fully understand the impact that COVID-19 was gonna have at that time. We look back at that now and we say, wow, When Nicole gets a request like this, it involves a lot of steps. She's got to source more machines, test them, and connect them with fiber optic cables to the internet. She usually has weeks or months to do it, but not this time. The world had shifted online in an instant, and her team had to respond just as quickly. And I'm like, so what's the deadline? The deadline is now. This is the time to just make sure that we get it done. This is Where the Internet Lives, a podcast from Google about the unseen world of data centers. I'm Barry Fisher. I'm a data storyteller at Google, and I'll be your guide through the physical places that make the internet run, places that very few people get to see firsthand. And I'll be joined by a wide range of people who operate this infrastructure along the way. In this series, we'll go inside a data center and learn how the machines actually work. We'll hear about the early days of Google's first data center designs, and how they set the stage for today's hyperscale facilities. We'll learn about how data centers are becoming a backbone of the clean energy economy, and we'll explore how quantum computing, the end of Moore's law, and new uses of the cloud are changing the way we build the physical internet. In this episode, how you use data centers. 
So before we visit the places where the internet lives, let's start with the basics. What exactly is a data center? Maybe you've seen an image of one, a big nondescript warehouse or a dimly lit room with stacks of glowing computers with neatly arranged bundles of colorful wires running across the ceiling. Inside, they often look space-agey or otherworldly, but they're not as mysterious as they seem. We asked Googlers to imagine how they would describe data centers to a middle schooler working on a class project about the internet. Some 12-year-olds are clever enough for a very complicated explanation of this, I suppose. <laughs> my, my nieces, for instance, uh, love YouTube, right? So what I have explained them is that uh, every, every time that they watch a video or they are connecting in the end to a data center, which is a, a big building with a lot of uh, powerful computers inside. So imagine a big building just filled with these big servers in racks, um, you know, up about six or eight feet tall. Well, these data centers have about 40 or 50,000 of those very powerful computers in them. Looking back at how I would have been at that age, just trying to capture, when you think about everything that's known pretty much in the world that we live in, the data centers process that information, make it available, and also network it so that it's accessible anywhere around the world. The best way to think about this is almost everything that we do using our wonderful tiny mobile devices today don't really get done in your tiny mobile device. The, your tiny mobile device is just a microphone and a screen and a few sensors. They're just sending data and asking questions from these buildings filled with computers, which is where the magic of the web and, and apps really happen. So we keep the lights on for the internet. And do you feel your nieces understand this when you tell them? At least they know that there's something behind the YouTube, that there's a place where things are happening, right? <laughs> As of 2020, Google has more than 20 data centers around the world. They're located on campuses, sometimes the size of hundreds of football fields, and they're made up of large buildings where cutting-edge computing hardware is assembled, housed, powered, and cooled. These facilities are certainly futuristic in what they can do, but they're also places where workers build things, make repairs, collaborate, all the stuff that people in any workplace do. People like Nicole Henley, who we heard from at the beginning. And when you're driving up, you just see steam coming from miles away and you think it's a factory but as you get closer and, and gps is navigating you to the site you realize oh this is my destination you it's like driving into a city the first time nicole went to a data center the scale blew her away council bluffs iowa is the size of 235 american football fields that's how big this campus is what was it like approaching and then going inside a Google data center for the first time? You know, nothing less than magic. You get in and you just hear the buzz of machines and you see the light of the machines. And you're just, it feels like you're in a huge computer tower. You're walking around and you see the rows of computers you see the lights, you see the buzz of, or hear the buzz of people working. 
and it feels like you're inside of a computer. And I, I had never experienced anything like it in my life. So what does a warehouse full of computers in Council Bluffs, Iowa, mean to an internet user in a place like Bangkok or Detroit? How exactly do you, as the end user, interact with those computers? Yeah, that's a great question. This is Steve Walter. If Nicole is installing and building the machines that run the internet, then Steve is the person connecting them together around the world. He's a VP of network engineering at Google. If I think of my data center, it's really this computer that I'm working from. And most of the tasks that I accomplish, I'm able to do with this computer. And that was especially true if you went back like 10 years ago, right? You probably had a Microsoft Windows machine or an an Apple MacBook, and you would edit your documents, you would play a video game, you you may watch a DVD. And that one computer had the capability of accomplishing the tasks that you asked it to. At Google... Your phone's in airplane mode, so I can't help you with that at the moment. Sorry. Uh, Google just answered with Google. (laughs) Let me make sure I'm still recording. Yeah. Okay. So Steve's little interruption there is the perfect example of how your device and a data center work together. When Steve said Google, his phone's Google Assistant app thought he was asking it a question. So he was trying to send that request to a computer warehouse over the internet. But his phone was in airplane mode, so it, it was no help. You know, that there's a task that, that task would have went back to a Google data center. It, it couldn't go accomplish that task. That, that computer that it was asking to answer that question was really a collection of thousands and thousands of computers that sit within a data center. And this back and forth conversation happens at astonishing speeds, usually a fraction of a second. It's pretty hard to fathom. So, Steve, is, is that still magic to you? Still magic. The idea, especially now with this pandemic, the fact that we're all working from home and we have the ability to interact with each other and, and the, the, the packages that make that be a reality you know, often happen in thousands of a second and they're delivered reliably between where you are and where I am and they just sort of work. And when millions of people turn to the internet in a pandemic, these machines need to be ready to just work, as Steve says. If you run a data center, you can deal with the spike in demand in two ways. First, you can configure your machines to ensure they keep up with traffic. That's part of what Google does during events like COVID. But you can also install more machines to get more raw computing power. And that's where Nicole Henley comes in. It's her job to mobilize the people and machines to meet that spike in demand. She works behind the scenes along with a small army of people, and together they make sure that people can search and stream, email, and educate students, even when traffic demands are really high. So we do have a huge responsibility. What we do matters, and it's important, and it does impact our end users. When COVID changed the way that people use the internet, Nicole's team had to act quickly. But she'd been in this situation before. In fact, just a few months earlier. It was the November before COVID hit, a week before Thanksgiving, and Nicole was just starting her day at the data center in Northern Virginia. Every morning, my team and I have a a daily stand-up to go through, what does the day look like? Is there anything that's urgent? She and her team were in the middle of turning up capacity for a big event. Black Friday was coming up, and experts were predicting a big year for online and mobile sales. 
So Nicole's team was ready for an increase in online shopping activity, both for consumers searching for products and companies that sell products through websites and apps around the clock. At the beginning of the day, everything was great. You know, we, we knew what the day was going to look like. People were assigned to their areas. It's going to be a smooth day. But then she got a message from a supervisor. Hey, we have this request that we need you all to knock out pretty quickly. What is pretty quickly was my first question. <laughs> and it was seven to 10 days. Sooner, if you can make it happen. In normal times, technicians at this data center install about 10 racks of new computing hardware in a week, with several weeks of planning. This was 10 times the normal volume. The request was driven by a handful of big companies that needed a rapid increase in data storage and processing. This massive request, on top of a ramp-up for Black Friday, created an unprecedented scenario for Nicole and her team. This is right before Thanksgiving. And in my mind, I'm thinking, how am I going to cook my family dinner? <laughs> and I'm at work. And my heart is always to make sure that the team has a good work-life balance. And they do. And I was like, okay, who wants to volunteer? Nicole needed people, but she also needed the cables, the machines, the racks, the trays, the network switches, all the key ingredients data centers need to boost computing capacity. How in the world are we going to even get resources to be on site during a quote-unquote holiday time? Well, that's my job to figure out, right? <laughs> Nicole's job title is operations manager. To really understand what that means, to understand the role she plays in keeping the web up and running, it's helpful to think of a data center like a human body. So the heart is like the CPU. It makes sure the computers, uh, the computers that pump away, doing all the work that makes the data center useful, right? That's the heart. That's the CPU. Your muscles are your rows and racks, and those are the ones that house the CPU. And then your veins are the electrical wiring um, that bring juice and power to the CPU. And, you know, like the veins, they bring power to our organs and enable them to function. Your nerves are like the network cabling. Your lungs, this one is my favorite part. Your lungs um, is like the air conditioning that ensures the whole data center is at the right temperature for optimal performance. Your senses are like the security systems that tell us when something isn't quite right. And of course, your brain is the data center infrastructure management systems. It takes in all the information from the components and optimizes it for the data center. So if the data center acts like the human body, what are you? <laughs> I guess I would be the, the doctor, the medical doctor, right? Making sure that those that, that the person responsible for their body is actually doing what they need to do to maintain their health, to maintain functionality. So when you got that big request right before Thanksgiving, was it like you went from doctor to emergency surgeon? Yes, there you go. Yes, doctor to emergency surgeon. <laughs> to bring these machines online, Nicole's team has a process. It can usually take a couple weeks, but she had about half that time. And so the first thing was, can we get the fiber? If we can get the fiber, we can get the majority of this knocked out. Fiber, the nerves, 
These are the colorful wires that you might see in a picture connecting lots of computers together. They're cables containing thin strands of glass that are about as fine as a human hair, sending information at the speed of light. Without them, the hardware can't communicate with other hardware or your device. So before any machines and racks get set up, they need the fiber in place. One of Nicole's team members had to go on a hunt for hundreds of bundles of fiber. And so she has a spreadsheet going around looking for the IDs on the boxes. So the boxes are labeled according to the build ID. So she's looking to see, oh my God, we're looking for, I'm gonna just say one, two, three, four, five, six. Do you see one, two, three, four, five, six on that boxes? One, two, three, I'm looking for one, two, three, four, five, six people. And while this is happening, the logistics team is unloading the racks and setting them into place. So the logistics team, they really put in a lot of extra hours to ensure that the racks arrived within a couple days. But it's not as simple as getting the racks here to the site. You have to unpackage the racks. You have to get them onto the floor. And if you saw these metal rack frames without any machines or cables in them, they might look like something from a bakery. Nicole's team actually calls them breadboards because they were designed after a baker's breadboard. So in bakeries, these breadboards look like a tall cart with four posts. And from the side, you can see row after row of empty slots where you can slide in a tray of freshly baked pastries. And that's kind of how the racks work, except technicians slide in trays of computer components rather than croissants or cookies. Inside that tray, that's where the computer lives. So imagine you had x-ray vision and you were looking through a computer. And in the computer, you're gonna see the motherboard, you're gonna see the hard drive, you're gonna see CPU, you're gonna see RAM, you're gonna see cables. Take that image and make it horizontal and put it on a tray and then just pop it into a breadboard. That is your machine tray. <laughs> Nicole makes it sound simple, but installing and testing hundreds of these units in such a short time is a major feat. Finally, they found enough fiber. They ran the cables, they installed the machines, they powered the rack. Then they had to test the equipment before connecting it to the world. It was something to see because it was the buzz of people working. It was the buzz of machines turning up, lights coming on. And what's the consequence of it failing or you getting it wrong? We don't want to have that conversation. <laughs> that is not good. The stakes are high. Think back to a time when you installed a new piece of software on your personal computer. Maybe the machine couldn't handle it. It slowed things down, made the system glitchy, caused errors. That's what could happen to an app or web service if you tried to launch it without the proper machines and systems in place. And remember when Nicole said she felt like she was inside of a computer? Well, she wasn't wrong. It might sound like these technicians are installing individual computers, but they're actually building pieces of a computer. The data center itself is really one giant computer. When you look at a picture of a data center and you see all those racks stretching out in big rows, it's easy to think about the boxes on them being a computer. But the reality is the whole thing is a computer, right? And it might have CPUs on one rack, it might have SSD flash drives attached to those CPUs, or they might be someplace completely different. 
and you're just talking to them over the network. This is Carrie Grimes Bostock. She's been at Google for 17 years and was a pioneer in improving Google's original search engine. Now she's an engineering fellow who helps decide what machines Google should use in its data centers and where in the world to put them. A good model when you look at these kind of glowing press photos of a Google data center or any other data center is the whole thing, you're almost opening the cover of an old fashioned desktop and looking in. And just like PCs, data center systems need to be continually upgraded to meet the growing demands of billions of users. So something like text-to-speech translation or speech-to-text, right, where you talk to your phone and it tries to translate what you said into something a computer can understand, those are incredibly expensive operations. And now that type of behavior is the default on a lot of sophisticated phones. So we're processing an incredible amount of information very, very quickly as people's internet speeds speed up. Google has to be faster, right? Because you're just not expecting to wait the way you would on a dial-up. So what does this all mean for you? You can stream movies instantaneously. You can search in any language, do video conferences at any time of the day, and access any piece of content you want. These things would be impossible without these campus-sized computer systems. So a lot of services become possible when the economics of moving these ones and zeros become affordable enough that you can do that over the internet. That's Steve Walter again. He's a networking expert who helps tie together all those data centers around the world. He started with Google 12 years ago, just a couple years after the acquisition of YouTube. It was a very different world back then. In 2008, there were, there were a lot of folks that never thought YouTube was going to work, right? This idea of, of internet-based video, you know, wasn't going to be something that would catch on. At that time, the backend technology needed to deliver video was still expensive. Streaming services like YouTube and Netflix and Hulu were emerging as real options, but there were economic and technical limits. Right, even a service like Netflix would not have been affordable, would not cost what you pay for it today, in 2008. But every year, data centers got bigger and more sophisticated. The hardware got cheaper, the designs got better, and the software controlling the machines got smarter. And now we're at a point where most tasks on your phone or computer aren't even done on the local hard drive. They're done in warehouses in places like Dublin, Ireland, or Papillion, Nebraska. At some point, your device is really just a window. It's just a way of accessing this set of resources that sits in some data center that has the capability of hundreds of thousands of computers that might otherwise have had to sit in your desk before to have that same experience. This new world is possible because computing and algorithms are constantly improving. It's also made possible by people like Nicole Henley, who keep those machines running, which takes us back to Thanksgiving weekend 2019. Her team had worked through the holiday, and they had only a few days left to get thousands of machines online in time for Cyber Monday. We were asking them to perform miracles. They were getting close. At this point, they'd run the fiber. They had installed hundreds of racks, and they'd slotted thousands of machines into those racks. Power was running, lights were blinking, but the final hurdle was troubleshooting the machines to make sure they actually worked. They were watching the progress bar crawl across their screens. And we're waiting, and it's like 78%, 80%, 82%. 
And finally, it hit 100%. And for us, it's like a huge moment of relief because we were able to meet the quota. Thanksgiving was Mission Impossible. A few months later, Nicole's team faced another critical mission, responding to traffic spikes after COVID hit. The pressure was even higher. This one was, okay, we have the material, we have the resources, we just don't have time. But when you're helping run the internet, there's only one option. Let's get it done. They already had a lot of the computing capacity in place. This time, they mostly needed to patch more fiber between machines. Going back to the human body analogy, Nicole's team had the muscles. Now they just needed to connect the nerves. And they pulled it off. In just one month, Google Classroom users doubled. Video conferencing grew by 30x. And all the essential healthcare workers, the contact tracers, nurses, the other people on the front lines, they had the internet tools they needed to fight COVID in the field. I felt a heavy burden there because we, we realized that this was important for the health of people. Like this was, you know, we had to make sure that search was available. All these products were available for the end user because you have people on the front line that are going to need internet capacity. You have people on the front line that are going to be using search. This is important. This is critical. And so I think this past year has really been helpful for us to connect the dots of how important and how real what we do is. So there you have it. You have a closer relationship to data centers than you probably realized. This is a podcast about the wonders of technology, and we're going to explore the remarkable scale of data centers. But we're also going to hear about the people who actually make the technology work, who literally make the internet work. Yeah, you know, what I find mind-blowing are the humans. That's Kerry Grimes Bostock again, the engineering fellow who figures out what machines go where. For example... We run these big optimizers to decide where to place machines, right, in the data center. What goes into a rack? When do we make that decision? And there are these incredible data processing sort of systems that we build. And at some point, though, it just transitions to people. And I think what blows my mind is just how complicated it is, right? And and how it has to be done perfectly so many times in a row to produce a data center and to keep a data center running, right? It's the power, it's the scheduling, it's the hardware, but it's also the people who work there, who are there when there's a storm, when there's a hurricane, um, when there's a brownout, when we're on reduced operations, when we're worried about a global pandemic, there's still machines flowing. It's impressive that it works at all, and it's a little bit, you know, it's something we need to invest in. It's something we need to think about how this works, right? So stay with us over the next five episodes as we explore how this world works. So when people ask you, what do you do? Do you just say, I build the internet? I build the enablers for the the internet. Simplistically, I tell people I'm an undersea plumber but that doesn't quite capture it all. What is the cloud? Everyone says, oh, it's in the cloud. It's in the cloud, right? Everything's in the cloud. But this is real physical infrastructure. This is brick and steel and concrete and a lot of uh, electrical wiring. And it's people that are actually building 
and keeping this industry running. And this industry is what is keeping the world running. So it really is the foundation of the physical world meeting the virtual world. So if you uh, think about really big supercomputers, that's one of the fun things I often talk about is that's what cloud does. It democratizes access to supercomputers. So everybody now has an access to a supercomputer that earlier only a few people had, right? And so that's really the big difference there. And if you extend that then to the kind of things we're doing for robots, it's the same kind of architectural thinking, which is that there is a wonderful local robot type technology platform, but then there's also behind the scenes. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that is not obvious, even to somebody who's using it, right? I think that's one of the aspects uh, of the internet that most people probably never had to think about it, right? Because it just sort of worked. Even the, the, the video conference that you and I are on right now, the, uh, it's pretty amazing to think about that all of this is a set of ones and zeros that's moving from your house through some Google data center and to me. And all of that's happening within a space of time that we don't perceive as anything different than reality, as if we were sitting across a table from each other. Your phone's in airplane mode, so I can't help you with that at the moment. Sorry. And that's our show. Where the Internet Lives is produced by Postscript Audio in collaboration with Google. Our theme music and scoring are by Echo Finch. You can subscribe to the show on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please give us a rating if you're enjoying our journey together so far. In this episode, you heard from Nicole Henley, Carrie Grimes-Bostock, and Steve Walter. You also heard the voices of Joe Cava, Enoa Anda, Luis Andre Bajoso, Jane Stowell, Partha Ranganathan, Nan Bowden, Thomas Gamble, and Heather Bichon. And you'll hear more from many of these folks in future episodes. Coming up, we're going behind the walls for a tour of places that very few people get to see. Plus, we'll hear about Google's early gamble on the architecture of data center machines. I'm Barry Fisher. Thanks for listening.